Thanks for joining us for Life Community Church. All right. Well, good morning. My name is Liz, if we haven't met yet. And um, I am one of the lead pastors here at Life. Um, <clears throat> I was commenting without the equipment. It's just like, I don't know what to do. There's so much space up here. Um, so this Sunday is actually the first Sunday of the Lent season. Um, and Lent is like a traditional thing that uh, the church history has observed the 40 days leading up to uh, Christ's death and resurrection. And really, it's a time of um, preparation, you know, in the same way that we did Advent and you kind of prepare for that season of celebration. And Lent is usually a little bit um, more like ex examining the inner being, right? Examining the soul, you know, what's going on internally, like our, our humanity laid bare before Jesus. Um, and so after Ephesians, we're going to be going through the, the Psalms, a few Psalms leading up to Easter to kind of, you know, like that range of, of human emotion is really expressed in the Psalms. Our humanity, our sin, our pain, our worship, the things that we lay bare before God. The Psalms gives us words for that. So that will be um, coming up here soon. But since our series is not lining up with the start of Lent, we are going to start our practices of Lent. Um, you know, we got, a, we got kind of behind in January when we had to skip two Sundays because of COVID and all the things. So um, we're still finishing up uh, Ephesians. But you might have gotten this when you came in, right? 40 days of connection. I think we're down to like 38 now, you know. I, well, maybe less because it started on Ash Wednesday. So here is our Lent practices for the next 30-something um, days leading up to Easter. So this is something you can take home, and we'll just kind of reiterate it each week. So the first, you don't have to do all of these. If you want to, you can. But what's, what's God really highlighting here for you? The first one... I this is, this is a great one, the personal ask, the big personal ask. If you were to boil down like one thing you're contending for, you're, you're asking God for in this season, what would that be? Write it down and then ask for that thing daily. Second would be give something up for the next 40 days. You know, Lent, there's a traditional fasting element in it. Um, and it can be fasting from a variety of things. Oftentimes, the Holy Spirit will quicken to you what that thing is for you. Um, it could be uh, a certain position in your heart, an attitude, right? Or negativity or stress, something that you're trying to lift off of your soul. Um, it could be something tangible uh, like dessert or um, social media or something, you know, more tangible. But that, that is something that you can ask God about. What, what's maybe drying up your soul right now in this season that you can fast from? Three is identify and pray for three people. Who are three people that you could be praying for throughout this next season? Somebody you live by, somebody you work with, any, you know, 
who comes to mind? Um, write those people down. Blow some money or kindness on one of those people, right? So out of your three people, like how can you just bless them? And the fifth uh, important one is to spend time with day. So maybe read a psalm in anticipation of our series. Let the psalm be your prayer. Um, yeah, just take some intentional time. So that's for you um, to kind of focus on during this uh, Lent series. So as we continue uh, our journey in Ephesians, we've, we've been moving through so many foundational things. It's been great, right? The, the glory of Jesus, our identity in him, how his, how his sacrifice has given us this new freedom that we are chosen and adopted and we have the Holy Spirit inside of us and, and his roots go down deep into his love for us. And now God has made this new family where we live out this new identity together and has, he's united us together. And as a family, we become the temple of his, his presence, right? And God's presence lives among us. And it's this beautiful picture of us living out the life of the church in this family of God. And we are bonded together through the Holy Spirit. And he now transitions us, Paul now transitions us to, okay, in this new family of God, here are some ways to live out those relationships, some spirit-guided ways to live out these relationships, all right? And so we're going to be talking about these spirit-guided relationships this morning. And it's kind of like this picture of I have here. And the spirit-guided relationships are like two sides of this coin. On one side, we have love, and on one side, we have submission. Love and submission. Now, before we get to the specifics of that, um, I want to give some reminders from chapter five. So he kind of bookends this, this next section as we go into it. So this is some, these are some of the things that Dan already highlighted, but I'm gonna show you these bookends that he gives to the whole community um, before we get into the specific relationships, wife, husband, uh, children, parents, and master slaves. All right. We're married. <laughs> okay. Wow. Uh, so, five verses two. It says, live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. So that's his first instruction to the community, right? And then he, he wraps it up um, kind of in verse 18. He says, be filled with the Holy Spirit 
And that shows itself by singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, making music to the Lord, giving thanks to God the Father, and further submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So here's the bookend instructions to the whole community. The whole family of Jesus is called to live a life of love. <clears throat> this is to be the characteristic of our actions towards one another. Spirit-guided relationships are filled with love, filled with the Holy Spirit, and submitting to one another out of our respect and honor of Jesus and what he has done for us. Love and submission, the two sides of this coin in spirit-guided relationships. But these are words that we have to define a little bit, right? So, you know, this is a, a non-judgment or a judgment-free, a judgment-free zone. How many of you um, have, uh, let's say, neutral feelings uh, towards the word submission? You have neutral feelings, positive feelings? Okay, nobody is willing to agree with me. All right. <laughs> um, how many of you might have some shaky feelings towards the word submission, even maybe negative associations? Okay, I would say we're unified in that. <laughs> um, so as we go into this next passage of scripture, I want to acknowledge that some of us might be very familiar with it. We've heard it, you know, all of our lives, half our lives, um, maybe some of us are not that familiar with it. Um, but regardless, if you're familiar or not with it, when I read this next passage of, passage of Scripture, your experiences, your own story, your own feelings get attached to it right away, right? Because that's how you kind of put things into context. So sometimes when you read scripture anywhere, you can have kind of a, oh, I'm not so sure about that, or I feel a little on guard with that, right? And that's okay. You kind of need to like, you kind of have to recognize your own reactions to scripture. Okay, God, what does that mean for me? Um, what does that, what kind of questions do I need to uh, research and investigate and ask when I have these reactions towards scripture? Sometimes I want to acknowledge that it can be, um, some of these things have hurt us in the past, right? We have very real experiences with the church um, and with growing up or whatever our context is where we, it, things in here have been misused and have hurt us. Um, some of us may not relate to this. You know, some of us are married and some of us are not married, right? Some of us um, have jobs, and some of us don't have jobs. We stay at home or we're retired. Some of us have kids, and some of us don't have kids. So there's different ways that we're going to identify with these next pas passages, and that's okay. So we're going to go on this journey together and unpack these things this morning um, and see how Jesus is showing us to have these spirit-guided relationships. One thing that is important to remember about scripture 
is that all of Scripture has a message for us, right? We can learn from all of Scripture. We can learn about God. We can learn about how to follow Jesus. But not all of Scripture is written to us, okay? So there's a difference there. Um, meaning, like, right now, when we're reading Ephesians, the letter of Ephesians, we're reading somebody else's mail, okay? It wasn't written to us, right? Paul wrote this letter to a specific group of people in Ephesus, and then that letter was circulated around to the New Testament churches, but it was written to a specific group of people in a specific context, and so we have to first understand that before we make the cultural bridge back to us and say, what's the message for us now? So we're going to do a little bit of that um, this morning as we try to unpack it. So I'm going to start here, uh, verse 21, 5:21. And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she should be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, as the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it's an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So the marriage relationship, most clearly, is supposed to be this picture of Christ and the church. But what does that look like, right? Because we bring all of our own understandings to this text. So we have to understand the cultural reality. And the cultural reality of Paul's time is that it was extremely patriarchal. It was extremely oppressive to women. And the non-Christian view at the time was that women were actually inferior beings, right? They didn't have equal rights um, as the husband. And the needs and concerns of the husband were the priority. They should dominate the household. And the wife existed to fulfill those needs and serve the husband. And Paul, his message here is really empowering, especially to women, but it's really hard for us to hear it that way because we weren't the original readers, right? So we read it and I think, well, it sounds like Paul's saying the same thing, you know? But <clears throat> what he's doing is he's taking this cultural metaphor 
of headship. And he's giving it a new definition. He's really flipping it upside down. Okay, the culture looked at headship like this, oppressive, and women have no rights, and he is giving it a different definition, a new meaning for the kingdom of God. And it's like this coin, right? Culturally, it was authority and submission, right? It was leadership and submission or control and submission. But he's saying, no, it's love and submission, and it's different than the cultural reality. That's the, that's the way the kingdom of God works. It takes cultural values and flips them upside down. So women are seen as equal worth and value. They are seen as people of equal worth and value. He still is using the term headship or head, but he's giving it different meaning. So he models it after Christ being the head of his church and Christ loving the church. So initially when we read um, the word love in scripture where husbands are meant to love their wives just as Christ loved the church, we often interpret love primarily as a feeling word, right? We, we think of it as uh, like our affection towards somebody, right? Um, you know, that warm, fuzzy, ooey-gooey love I have towards somebody, right? Like I, I feel something for somebody. But that's not the biblical definition of love. So um, love is not a feeling word when the, bio, when the auth, biblical authors are talking about it here. It's something that you do. Love is an action. Uh, it's a commitment and an action. It's not based on feeling. So Tim Mackey, uh, he's um, a person from the Bible Project, if you follow any of their stuff, and he defines love like this. He says, love is a commitment to act for the well-being of another. Love is a commitment to act for the well-being of others. So this is what Paul is calling husbands to do, to act in a way that is for the well-being of their wife. What about submit? We kind of got to define submit. Because many of our associations with the word submit, well, we saw, are negative. Um, they revolve around things like just being passive, maybe being dominated by another human, weakness, a, a loss of freedom and control, right? But submit simply means to put under. And so... Tim Mackey, again, he defines submit in this biblical lens of prioritize the interest and well-being of others above your own. Prioritize the interest and well-being above your own. That sounds like a, a very gospel way of living. That sounds like a very Christ-like way of living. That I take the self-centeredness that I am 
bent towards and I replace it by coming under and serving the well-being of somebody else and, and saying, you know, I'm going to take the interest off myself and I'm going to say, this would, would help the well-being of somebody else. This would help the well-being of my husband. So I'm going to take an action towards that instead of just myself. Paul, he kind of expounds at the very end in verse 33 and says that um, submit is close to and kind of like respect when he sums it up and says, each man must love his wife and the wife must respect her husband. So what's the motivation behind loving and submitting? It's Christ. Christ has done this for all of us. And so any action I take in my marriage, submission or love, is motivated by the gospel and the, the things that Jesus has done for you and me. Submission isn't just, you know, complete obedience and quietness and meekness and, you know, you just stay low <laughs> only just to be squashed. It's saying, yes, I will compromise here. Yes, I will serve here. Yes, I'll let go of just my self-centered thinking to prioritize the well-being of my husband or another person, right? Okay, so Paul is saying the husband's the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Another potential place of of discomfort for us. So what does it mean? Well, let's look. What does it mean for Christ to be the head of the church? Jesus, he exercised his role of being the head by putting himself under others. He prioritized the well-being of his people, the whole church. He sacrificed absolutely everything for the flourishing of the body. Now, this is very different than the cultural understanding, and especially us when we're raised with um, potential, like, this is what it means to have authority, right? Male authority looks like this, right? Maybe we're raised with the husband should have the final say. He's the ultimate leader, the ultimate authority. He has the job. He has the trajectory for the family. Everything stops with the head. But Paul is not saying that. He's not saying that. He's saying the head loves. The head gives up. The head sacrifices. So he's using this term metaphorically. And it's true, if you look at other places where head is written or in ancient writings, there is um, a notion of superiority and authority. That is a sense of that word head, especially if you're talking about it in military terms and things like that. But just like we have different senses and meanings to words in English, it's the same thing here. So just because a word has one sense doesn't mean that that is the way that it's being defined 100% when it's used. 
And so the, the word head has other senses too. And the sense that, that Paul is really getting at here is this position and function of the head to the body. What does it mean to have a head and a body? What does it mean for Christ to be the head and us to be the body? It's an image really of unity than authority. Christ is the head and we are the body and we cannot be severed. We are together unified in him forever. And this is the kingdom view that Paul is after, that we would be united in Christian marriage as one flesh. As the scripture says, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. We are to be one flesh as the husband follows the example of Christ as the self-sacrificial head. So the Christian meaning of headship is to love, to give yourself up for your wife, to love Jesus and to follow his lead and to allow for the flourishing of your wife, the same way that Jesus gave himself up for the flourishing of the body. And it's this gospel dance where we love and we sacrifice and we come under and respect and submit. It's two sides of the same coin. Is the wife to not love the husband? No! Is the, the husband to not submit at times? No, because guess what? Paul's book end instructions to the whole community is love and submission. We're to, that is to characterize our relationships. To love and come under flourishing and the well-being of one another. To paint this unified relationship. Okay, so Paul, the cultural expectations of the time when Paul is writing this is that the husband was the leader and the provider of the body, okay? And it was actually the responsibility of the body to be the one to sacrifice for the flourishing of the head. And Paul's readers would expect him to give the instructions that he gave to the husband to the wife because the body, which is the wife, is supposed to be the one sacrificing for the well-being of the head. The head is the most important position and the head is supposed to be safe. The head is supposed to want, be the one having the well-being in the cultural times. So what Paul is saying is radically upsetting the cultural norms. He's saying Christian marriages need to live out this headship differently under kingdom values. The head is actually the one called to give up of himself for the wife, just as Jesus did for his body. 
And in ancient household codes, love was never written as a requirement for husbands. So this is, this is a kingdom upside down way of living out a unified marriage. <clears throat> the head is now this uh, source of unity where when the head chooses not to live like the world, exerting power and privilege, but applies these kingdom values of sacrifice, then the head and the body come together in this unity that reflects the glory of Christ and his church. That is the beauty of love and submission, dancing with one another in this gospel dance. And I would say it's been a journey for myself and my husband (laughs) for us to dance like this because I grew up with all of these uh, negative associations, right? And so we got married when we were I don't know, 22 and young. And, and I thought, well, I can't outlead my husband. He is supposed to be the leader. So any ambition and thing that I wanted to do, I kind of waited and hoped that I could channel my leadership through my husband. <laughs> you know, like I couldn't go after things unless he was doing it. Well, that just led to frustration. You could probably imagine You can't really live your life out through another person, right? And then, you know, Dan, if he thinks, well, I'm not leading in the right way or enough way, like, we're just not getting it right. We must have to figure out something here. And I'll tell you what, like, I wasn't born with the characteristics of meekness and quietness. God just didn't gift that to me out of the womb, you know? And now I'm raising three girls and a few of them don't have those characteristics either. So what am I to do? How do I channel them into godly, spirit-guided relationships? Well, I'll tell you what. When the head looks like loving and sacrificing and giving himself up for the well-being of his wife, that's my husband, 100%. He lives like that. And when I turn away from my self-centeredness and say, okay, I'm going to make choices and actions that come under and support your well-being and flourishing instead of just my own, and I'm doing it all because I love and honor Jesus, then we dance together, right? Where our love and submission and our honoring and sacrificing towards one another helps us live out the gospel. And it doesn't mean that I can't lead or have authority within our relationship, right? I can be fully me and do this gospel dance together. And then we come together in greater unity that way than some other version of this coin, right? And so this self-giving love 
is the theme that he continues to talk about um, when he goes on to children and parents and and slaves and masters. And we see Paul continue to say, okay, culturally, um, the the cultural code is put one uh, person with the highest, with the most amount of responsibility to uphold this relationship, right? And he's saying, no, we're balancing it out so that both parties have mutual responsibility to, to treat each other well so that the gospel is shown in this community. So parents, he says, you have to offer discipline um, that isn't harsh or provoking. That wasn't the cultural norm at the time. And masters, you have to remember, you have a master too, and it's Jesus. So let's read. We're going into chapter 6. And it says, Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord. For this is the right thing to do. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you, and you will have a long life on earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up in the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. So honoring parents was one of the most agreed upon cultural things in ancient society, right? Everyone agreed, Jews and Gentiles, honoring your parents is super important. And as long as children are in the home, they should obey their parents as well. Now, when he says this command, it's, um, this is the first command with a promise. It's more in this context like a, a promise of thriving life for the whole community. If, par- if children are honoring their parents and parents are treating their children well, the family structure thrives. And the, the long life of families that uphold the community thrive, right? And instead of the family life breaking down, when these things are upheld, the family life thrives, the whole community flourishes. And Paul corrects harsh punishment of the, t- the time. And he says, you know, your highest calling as a parent is to nurture faith in your children. That's the highest calling. Talk to your kids about Jesus. Point them to Jesus. You know, a lot of us, when you think about doing your quiet time or your devotion or your prayer time, we do it individually, right? Like um, just by ourselves quietly, and that's good. But as parents, we need to live out our faith. We need to do it on display. So pray with your kids or pray next to your kids. Read scripture with your kids or out loud. Show them that you live this. It's not just something you do by yourself, but that Jesus really is a value to be lived out on display. And he says, you know what? If fathers and mothers, if you nurture your children, that's going to build them up holistically. And that's going to add to the unity and the flourishing of the home. And we move on to um, slaves and masters, which you can kind of think of like boss and employment, but we'll get to there. Have you ever like been in a job environment where someone else just wasn't pulling their weight, right? Maybe somebody was... 
uh, just not cutting it. You knew like I could work twice or three times as fast as that person and produce more. And it's frustrating, right? Or maybe like um, that person, you, you've worked with a person that only works hard when the boss is around, right? Where y- you know they're capable of hard work, but it only picks up when like they're, they're being watched. Or maybe getting out on time is dependent on this person um, pulling their weight. And so instead you have to pull more weight. You know, those are kind of the, the injustices that sometimes happen. Well, in this time, um, masters would complain, who are like bosses, that their servants weren't working unless someone was watching over them. So Paul encourages the ethic of, of hard work, but with proper motivation. Again, it's, our motivation is all about Jesus. We do it for Jesus. So he says, slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Try to please them all the time, not just when, you are, when they are watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. Work with enthusiasm as though you are working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember, the Lord will reward each one of us for the good we do, whether we are slaves or free. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven, and he has no favorites. So Paul is talking to kind of like an urban culture where they are, it's normal for them to have a household servant, basically. And this is not the kind of slavery that happens in America. So you cannot take that story and overlay it here on the scriptures. Those are not the same thing. Slavery, servanthood, back then might have been to pay a debt. It was kind of a type of employment. Or maybe it was a way for somebody living in poverty to have a livelihood. And in fact, in Roman society, when you were 30, you were freed as a slave and it was your master's responsibility to make sure you became a citizen and you had legal rights and financial help. Now, yes, were there uh, injustices throughout that system? Of course. And God nor Paul are endorsing the cultural system in this uh, letter. But what Paul is doing is he's talking to people in a pastoral way. He's giving them pastoral advice, saying, wherever we find ourselves in society, here is how you should live. He's not starting a political uprising. That wasn't the intent of this letter, but he's saying, wherever you find yourself in society, this is how to have spirit-guided relationships. Okay, so he's giving them new meaning to the situation that they are probably already in or the role that they are already in. And he's giving responsibilities on both people to treat each other in ways that reflect the gospel. And so this is our call to have spirit-guided relationships through the power of the Holy Spirit that we don't 
follow the pattern of this world, but we live sacrificial love in a way that displays the gospel in plain sight. So I have two calls to actions as we finish. If you want to put that slide up. The first is when you think about the different relationships, which relationship do you need to pursue love and submission, taking the model of Christ? So you think about your marriage or parenting or your job, and you think, man, I could model Christ better in this relationship. Just ask God, have that be a dialogue with you and God this week. The second call to action is where might you need to seek healing from God in these relational areas? So what I mean by that is, Maybe there is hurt in these different relationships that has happened. Maybe ways that you have been taught or experienced or whatever. And God wants to bring healing to some old patterns that have, have caused harm in your heart. So we're not leaving anybody out in our calls to action. And God doesn't leave our hearts out. It's holistic what he does in our hearts. So take those two with you this week in in your dialogue with God. At Life Community Church, we want you to experience the powerful, life changing love of God. To learn more, Go to lifemohammed.org. Lifemohammed.org.